Well, today uh, we will cover part three of our four-part series through the book of Ruth, which is a story of redemption, the best kind of story there is. Let me share a very brief synopsis of the story up to this point. Naomi is married to Elimelech, who due to a famine decides to leave his ancestral home in Bethlehem, walking out of the promised land and moving to the pagan land of Moab. In so doing, he moves away from God and his promises. Elimelech promptly dies. Ten years later, his two sons, Malin and Chilion, also die, but only after marrying Moabite women Ruth and Orpah. Naomi rightly decides to return to the promised land, but bereft of her husband and sons, she does so in sorrow. She tells her two daughters-in-law that they should go back to their people and their gods. But Ruth makes a faith decision to stay with Naomi and to trust in the God of Israel, Yahweh, the one true God. She makes a covenant to that effect. With Ruth in tow, Naomi limps back into Bethlehem where, unbeknownst to her, the redemption plan of God is already moving forward. After arriving back in Bethlehem where the famine has ended and a great harvest is taking place, Ruth goes to a certain field where, by law, she is allowed to scour for scraps of barley after the reapers have done their work. The owner of the field happens to be Boaz, a close relative of Elimelech, and he, being a godly man, takes pity on Ruth and Naomi, loading down Ruth with more food than they can eat and begging her to look nowhere else for providence but to him. That pretty much takes us to our bookmark, the point at which we will pick up the story today. One of the things I love so much about this story, and really it's true of most Bible stories, is that we can see so clearly the counterpoint between God's sovereignty and the free agency of man. That is, we can see the miraculous way that God is able to bring about his plan even through the good and bad choices of mankind. God does this while maintaining the integrity of the human will, allowing our choices to have consequences, yet somehow working it all together according to his overarching and eternal plan. For me, this is one of the great awe-inspiring mysteries of the God we serve. Somehow our Father in heaven composes a symphony out of the chaos we create crafting a masterpiece out of our broken pieces. And he does it all without forcing his will upon us. This is the miracle of redemption. God can redeem everything that happens. One of my favorite life phrases is simply this. God can redeem it. God can redeem it. When I find myself sitting in a traffic jam, God can redeem it. When I pay too many bills at the wrong time and my bank account is overdrawn, God can redeem it. Somebody need to hear that today. When anything happens that I didn't want to happen, God can redeem it. Even if someone I care about passes away, God can redeem it. Everything happens for a reason is an empty phrase. But God can redeem everything that happens is filled with hope. Because you see, while God doesn't cause everything, He can bring everything into submission to His will. And He can bring good out of everything. That doesn't mean everything that happens is good. And in fact, if everything were good, there'd be no need for redemption. Now what this means is that God can bring good out of everything that happens. Ultimately, God even has a solution for death. It's a little thing called resurrection. We were just singing about it. 
And this is coming for all those who put their trust in the one who first rose again. No matter what happens in your life, the God who loves you can redeem it. He can buy it back and put it to work. That's why one of my favorite verses of Scripture is Job 19, 25. I know that my Redeemer lives and will stand on this earth again. I doubt you've been through anything worse than Job, the man who said that. God can redeem everything that happens, and Jesus is coming to do just that. This is actually the overarching message of the book of Ruth. Once again, to redeem something is to buy it back, to buy back something that had been lost, to bring hope to something hopeless. We belonged to God in the first place, but we strayed from Him in sin. Instead of letting us go, He paid the price to buy us back. The price of our redemption was Jesus Christ, God's Son. To tell us die, Jesus said, from the cross, paid in full. And the price of our redemption was paid off right then and there. If the book of Ruth, in the book of Ruth, we see pictures of redemption, both literally and figuratively. We can especially see our own redemption foreshadowed as we allow Ruth to represent the church, the church for all nations, and Boaz to represent Christ, our Redeemer. Ruth is primarily a story of redemption, perhaps the best ever written, though Star Wars might be a distant second. In week one of this series, we looked at choices made and how those choices corresponded to the redemption of each character. In week two, we looked at several specific blessings that came through the redemption choices of Naomi and Ruth. This week, we will look at redemption risks. And I'll start by telling you that redemption always requires risk. As I did last week, I'll read today's portion of the text, pausing here and there to point out moments when the allegory is particularly powerful. That is to say, I will pause to point out those moments when we can clearly see Ruth foreshadowing the church and Boaz foreshadowing Christ. After we've read the story in this way, we will then break it down more literally to see what we can learn about the risks redemption requires. Starting with chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Already we need to stop and put an asterisk by the word security. Another word for security is salvation. As we've covered several times, these women are desperate in that culture and they are in need. They need to be saved and they need a savior. And so again, we see Ruth representing us people who desperately needed eternal security from God. Naomi continues, verse 2, Now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Now, we're going to talk about some of that in a minute, but you can put another asterisk by the phrases, wash yourself, anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes. The prophetic part of this picture is preparation to enter the presence of God, our Savior. A whole message could be shared on these three phrases, what they meant in that culture, what they correspond to in terms of the Christian faith. In the New Testament, words like washed, 
and anointed are often used to refer to the church and the idea of putting on new clothes, clean white clothes is also used as a metaphor for the sanctification of the church. That is the process of being made holy. We know that we cannot do any of these things for ourselves in order to be saved. But remember that Ruth has already been converted by grace through faith at this point. She is already saved in the sense that she has put her faith in Yahweh. And he's not going to abandon her. Thinking forward, these are the things we need to do as believers. So just as Ruth prepared to go into the presence of Boaz, so we need to um, do as we recognize the presence of Christ, our Savior. And to be clear, I'm not talking about preparing to go to church. (laughs) This does not point to putting on your Sunday best, but rather your daily best. God is with us every moment of every day, everywhere we go. We're not to take our salvation or the presence of God in our lives for granted. Verse after verse in the New Testament tells us to be sanctified. We need to take spiritual baths daily. We need to be anointed by the Spirit daily. And we need to make the decision to put on the clothes of righteousness daily. Like Ruth, we need to make preparations in order to walk with a Savior. We live in His presence. So we need to stay clean. We need to stay anointed with His Spirit. Keep those robes of righteousness from being stained. We need to stay prepared for the presence of God because He lives in us. Reading on from verse 4. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. Naomi acknowledges that although there are some things for Ruth to do in preparation, the ultimate decision maker and the one that she needs to put her trust in and rely upon is going to be Boaz, who again foreshadows Christ. Verse 5, she said to her, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain and she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Let's pause again because the prophetic imagery here tells us more than what is obvious. The church rests at the feet of our Savior and we wait for him. However long it takes, we wait for the Lord Jesus Christ to arise, to act, to move. And ultimately, we wait for him to return. We wait at his feet in submission to his lordship. Verse 8, it happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward. And behold, a woman was lying at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. Now put an asterisk, asterisk by close relative. And if you're using this translation, you should write in the words, kinsman redeemer. Kinsman redeemer or family redeemer, because that is what it says in the original Hebrew. In fact, if you look in the margin of the NASB, the translation I'm using, it will tell you that an alternative translation here is redeemer. I don't know why they made it close relative in the text and then explained it further in the margin, margin but this is one of a few places where I prefer other translations. The point is that the word relative is quite literally redeemer in the Hebrew. Hear that. Relative in this context means redeemer in the Hebrew. Most other translations word it this way in the first place. And so if there'd been any doubt, hopefully it's now crystal clear that Boaz foreshadows Christ. He is the redeemer in our story. Now we're going to talk a lot more about the kinsman redeemer next week, but understand that in this enigmatic scene, 
Boaz is simply being asked to function as the redeemer or the savior for Ruth and her family. So again, Ruth represents the church and Boaz represents Christ, our savior and redeemer. The crazy thing is that the writer of this story wrote these words more than a thousand years before Jesus or his church were born. Make no mistake, the book of Ruth is both historical and prophetic, just like so many other portions of the Word of God. Verse 10, then he said, may you be blessed to the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask, for all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Now, it is true I'm a close relative, kinsman, redeemer. However, there is a relative, redeemer, closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, see, we could have found out by the context anyway, even if you didn't know Hebrew, right? If he will redeem you, the one, he could redeem you or I could redeem you. If he will redeem you, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, rose before one could recognize another, and he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Again, he said, give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it, and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, Do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then she said, Wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. All right, so having pointed out the historical foreshadowing and the allegorical nature of the story and seeing how it points forward prophetically to the future relationship between Christ and the church, let's now look at the message of the story more literally. The theme I see in this part of the story has to do with risk, which in this context is simply a word for faith in action. Risk is faith put to action. Know this, to put your faith to action, you will need to risk something. And so the overarching idea we can apply from this text is this. Those who are redeemed will be asked to take risks for God. Those who are redeemed will be asked to take risks for God. I would also add that when we do take godly risks, that is when we walk by faith, there are always rewards. And by way of advertisement, redemption rewards will be our topic of discussion next week. However, in order to get to the rewards, we will find that risk is required. God simply expects us to put our faith into action. And he even makes his plans contingent upon our active faith. Similar to the parting of the Jordan River, which did not happen until the people stepped into the water. Today's text demonstrates that those who are redeemed will be asked to take risks for God and even that his plan is made dependent by him upon his people taking these risks. God can make his plan dependent upon people. He can and he does. That's the message of Romans 10. In case you don't want to take my word for it. So let's take a look at this one character at a time and see what we can learn from a 3,000-year-old true story preserved all of these years by the power of God. First, let's look at Naomi. In our story, we can see that, number one, Naomi risks planning. 
Look back at the first four verses of our text. Notice Naomi's careful planning from verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, anoint yourself, put on your best clothes, go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. So many details. It shall be when he lies down, you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down, then he will tell you what you should do. You've heard of a man with a plan. Well, Naomi's a woman with a plan, okay? Reading between the lines, she's been working on this for a while. The threshing floor was the place where they separated grain from the stalks and the chaff, so that uh, what was left was the edible portion. Now understand that the threshing floor was shared by the community. They all took turns with it. Uh, different landowners used it on different nights. So how did Naomi know Boaz would be threshing out his grain that night? She had obviously done her homework. Naomi thinks through her plan very carefully. She's a wise woman. This ain't her, you know, it's not her first rodeo. Being a wise woman, she knows men. An important thing for a woman to know and so much easier than the converse, if you follow me. Anyway, Naomi knows that men basically have two needs. One of those is a sandwich. I'll leave the other need to your imagination. And I realize that that is an oversimplification of men, but Naomi knows that it would be better for Ruth to wait until Boaz has eaten before making her proposition. Ladies, if you don't know this about your husband or your brother or your son, you can thank me later. Don't ask him for anything while he's hungry. I'm not saying that you are obligated to feed him, but just being pragmatic, you might want to do so. Now learn from Naomi. Get him a sandwich and wait until he's relaxed before you ask. No. There's actually a lot more that I could point out in terms of Naomi's careful planning and her thought process here, but let's get to the application. First, you might ask, how is planning a risk? Think about Naomi's emotional state before this chapter of the story. She's basically been in the dregs of depression. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. The Lord has taken everything away from me, and his hand has gone out against me, she said. The author goes out of his way to paint the picture that Naomi's at the end of a rope. But as I mentioned, in spite of all that, she's also limping back to God. She has held on to just enough faith to return. And God rewards this faith as he begins to redeem his plan for Naomi. In Boaz, God has given her a glimmer of hope. But she's expected to take the risk of making plans. That's her role here. And God counts on it. He counts on Naomi. And I don't know how God would have brought about his plan if she hadn't taken this risk, but I don't need to know. What I can see is that God's plan required Naomi's risk, that is, her faith put into action. Now, personally, when my last set of plans didn't work out, uh, I tend to avoid making more plans. Anyone else? I don't, I don't want to risk planning when the previous plan, you know, what Naomi's just been through. When my last plan didn't pan out, I'm not really wanting to risk any new plans. And what I'm saying is that, that to stop making plans is not a good thing. The best laid plans of mice and men may often go askew. But whether mouse or man, continuing to plan is still the right thing to do. Yes, I made that last part up. 
This is one of the biggest lessons I learned while planting our first church back in Missouri. Just like this church, we planted River Oaks Church from scratch, so everything we ever did was new. Everything was a risk, and we didn't know if anything we tried was actually going to work. At one point, we took the biggest risk of my pastoral career to date and bought almost a million-dollar piece of property. We were planning to build on it right away, but for several unforeseeable reasons, that didn't happen. Remember 2008? Yeah. We had taken a huge risk, and it didn't pan out. After that, I was frozen in place for a while, and the church stagnated. But at some point, I had to start taking risks again, and that's when the church moved forward. Taking risk means two things. Number one, sometimes the risk will pay off, and number two, sometimes you'll get burned. But regardless, in the kingdom of God, failure to risk is simply to fail. Why? Because to risk is to put faith into action, and that is something God counts on. I actually believe that God wants us to risk planning for things, even while holding on to the tension that our plan may not work out. Let me give you two verses. Verse, uh, first, the Bible says, But the noble man devises noble plans, and by noble plans he stands. Isaiah 32.8. And secondly, Proverbs 16.9, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. If you synthesize those two verses, you get the idea that a man or a woman of God makes good plans and then surrenders those plans to him, knowing that he will guide us along the way and show us where the plan needs to change. Here again, we have this balance between God's sovereignty and our freedom, or better, our responsibility to choose. How does this apply to you in your personal life? Well, let me make it simple. I believe God wants you to make plans. You see, some people take such a view of God's sovereignty, of God's control over things, that planning seems futile. This philosophy can lead to a fatalistic and reactionary approach to life, but that's just not what we see from godly people in Scripture. Most of the biblical heroes were planners. They risked to plan, even knowing their plans might not work out as they thought, even knowing God might reveal a better plan along the way. Remember when God told David he didn't get to build the temple? That was his plan to get to build the temple? That's true, but David did get to plan it. And God both informed and redeemed that plan, bringing it into submission to his will. What am I saying? You ought to have some financial plans. Uh, you ought to have a plan for making your marriage a better picture of God's love. Um, you ought to have a consistent plan for disciplining your children if you have children. You ought to have a plan for personal growth, for spiritual growth, to bear fruit, for the heritage or legacy you'd like to leave behind. You ought to have some type of career plan, or in my case, like maybe a plan to plant 50 churches by 2050. You and I ought to plan to build something, something that lasts. God expects those he redeems to take the risk of making plans, even while knowing those plans may change over time, and even knowing that as we pursue those plans, it may even seem that we wasted time or resources on something that didn't go according to plan. And by the way, a lot of the point is in the risk. We should take the risk to make plans because risk is faith in action. Risk is how we learn to depend upon God. Remember the overarching message of the book of Ruth. God can redeem everything that happens. And see, that's why we don't need to be afraid to risk a plan. 
Because even if our plan goes south, God can redeem it. He is sovereign over our plans. So go ahead and make some plans without fear. From Naomi this week, we learned to risk planning. What can we learn from Ruth? Two things. First, Ruth risks submission. Let me make a massive understatement. The posture of submission has been devalued by our society. (laughs) Is that true or is that true? Everybody wants to be the alpha dog at all times in every situation. But the fact is that for any family, church, organization, group, or society to work, we all need to be submissive at different points. Biblically speaking, as Ephesians and Colossians tell us, children are to submit to parents. Wives are to maintain a general posture of submission to husbands. And also, often, husbands will need to submit to wives. I would suggest starting with the thermostat. Meanwhile, all of us are called to submit to the governing authorities, Romans 13, and church members are to submit to the spiritual leadership of their pastors, Hebrews 13, 17. Scripture constantly calls us to submit to God's rules, God's call, God's will, God's voice. The fact is that the Bible has us submitting a whole lot more than it has us not submitting. After all, the heart of following Christ is putting others before ourselves. But have you noticed how unpopular submission is in our culture today? Surely everyone's noticed this, right? And this has really changed a lot in my lifetime. Personally, I think it all starts with a complete lack of discipline in most homes, particularly from parents to children. A lack of biblical discipline in the home breeds a lack of respect for authority outside the home, which results in a hatred for the very idea of submission. Let's think about this in the context of the way people talk about police officers. Many people talk about police officers like they're the the enemy. At best, they call them cops, or at worst, they call them pigs, which is infuriating. Others call them the popo, barneys, the donut patrol, whatever. Anything to belittle them, make them seem small and unimportant. Some Some even use acronyms like ACAB, which is supposed to mean all cops are bad. But why? Why would people make such ridiculous statements? Because all police officers represent authority. And for the most part, we've been trained to hate all authority. Like the four-year-old who said to the Sunday school teacher, you're not the boss of me. That's what some of us sound like as adults. We're loath to submit to anyone, anywhere. Some of us more than others. Did you know that in the church there's supposed to be spiritual mentorship going on? And folks, mentorship requires at least a somewhat submissive mentee in order to work. The Bible tells us that the spiritually mature are supposed to be training up those who are newer to the faith, often the older mentoring the younger, though many times it has nothing to do with age. Those with spiritual experience are supposed to be helping those who are still getting their feet wet. But why doesn't this happen naturally? Why are new believers not seeking out someone to help them? In earlier centuries, I believe this did happen more naturally, but today that doesn't seem to happen naturally because nobody wants to submit. They're mostly too proud for this to happen. Nobody wants to be told anything different than what they already think they know, which they can amply reinforce from multiple sources on the Internet. They certainly don't want to be the kind of person who simply does what they're told, ever, Heaven forbid that would ever happen. Now we're starting to get it. Submission is basically doing what you're told. 
Oh. What if someone older than you in the faith were to tell you what you need to do to help solve this or that problem in your life? Would you ever just do it? Even if you didn't necessarily get the reasoning behind it? Or would you more likely be offended and ignore those instructions? What if those instructions even came from a pastor or other leader in the church? Would you consider risking submission? What is the risk required in submission? Well, first, it requires laying down pride, which is tough. And second, what if the person is wrong? What if his or her advice is bogus? What if their decision is not best? That is the risk of submission. And yet, what is the risk of not submitting? What was the risk for Ruth? Let's take a look. Ruth submitted perfectly to Naomi and to Boaz. She simply trusted that they knew what they were doing. And she risked it all to follow their advice. She did exactly what she was told, even though there is no way she understood all of the reasoning behind her instructions. First, she submitted Naomi, verse 5. She said to her, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. Without reading it again, recall that Naomi, Naomi had given Ruth specific instructions right down to some pretty detailed nuances such as wait until he's finished eating and drinking. Uh, she told her to take the covering off only his feet. And, and where to be when he woke up. We'll talk some more about the symbolism behind all that in a minute. But the amazing thing is that Ruth did not improvise. She didn't think to herself, that's silly. I have a better idea. She just trusted that Naomi knew what she was talking about and did exactly what she was told. Folks, that is submission. Ruth also submitted to Boaz, who told her to stay at his feet until morning. Our text tells us once again she did exactly what she was told. Now, my sweet wife is a submissive soul, but I'm not sure that she would be willing to sleep at my feet for no obvious reason. Uh, I'm just saying, rest assured, I won't be asking her to do that. But the point is that Ruth is being extremely humble here. This is an uncommon humility, uncommon submission. She realized that she's the one in need. She's the one who's asking to be rescued. And she shows her submission to Boaz in a very tangible way. That's the message of this act. I think Ruth understood that this thing was way bigger than her. Obviously, she had a lot at stake, but so did Naomi, and so did Boaz. Naomi and Boaz were her spiritual elders. And because Ruth submitted to their leadership, everybody wound up winning. In this redemption story, Ruth's risk of submission was rewarded. Think about the need for mentors and spiritual leadership and leaders in the church and really in our lives. Think about what happens when we can't follow simple instructions and godly advice, but have to do everything our own way. What if more of us risk submission more often? What might the church be like in terms of godliness? What problems might we avoid? I do understand that this principle has also been abused. And if that happens, you don't just keep letting yourself be trampled. But let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater either. I think submission is lacking in most families, in most churches, and especially in certain sectors of society, for instance, where the police are seen as the enemy. I think our entire culture is at a loss because of a refusal to submit in appropriate ways and at appropriate times. Now, is there ever a point to rise up against oppressive forces? 100% yes. But generally speaking, there are many times when the right thing to do is to risk submission to authority. 
Ruth is a great reminder of how risking submission can pay off. The second thing Ruth risks, risks is rejection. That's number three, Ruth risks rejection. One of the things that's easy to miss in our story is that Ruth asks Boaz for something huge. She flat out asks him to marry her. For the record, I don't think there's anything inherently unbiblical about her asking him. Maybe it isn't what most girls dream of, but in this case, there's nothing wrong with her asking him. Let's review this part of the text. Picking up in verse 9, he said, who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a kinsman redeemer. Then he said, may you be blessed to the Lord, my daughter. You've shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask, for all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. We need to focus in for a minute on this request that Naomi clearly taught Ruth to ask uh, Boaz. She said, spread your covering over your maid, for you are a kinsman redeemer. This is like Jewish code for marry me because it is the biblical thing to do. Let me explain. First, understand that the idea of placing someone under your cloak or under your cloth or your covering was common imagery in the Hebrew people. To this day, the groom will symbolically spread a cotton or silk cloak over his bride as a part of any traditional Jewish wedding ceremony. Ezekiel 16, 8 demonstrates this imagery very clearly as God speaks of his marriage with Israel in these exact terms. The point is that Boaz knew precisely what Ruth was asking with this phraseology. She was asking for marriage. But Ruth's imagery goes a step further. Remember back to chapter 2, Boaz said to Ruth in verse 12, may the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Now get this, the Hebrew word for wings here is the same word Ruth uses to propose, translated in our text as covering. The translators use two different English words because of different contexts, but the original word is exactly the same. Ruth very intentionally chose to use the same wording in asking Boaz uh, for marriage as Boaz had used in describing the protection of God which Ruth had received by coming to Judah with Naomi. Is this romantic stuff or what? I mean, twilight has nothing on the book of Ruth. Undoubtedly, by the tutelage of Naomi, Ruth is saying here, just as I have sought refuge under the covering of the Lord, so now I seek refuge under the covering of my kinsman redeemer, the one who biblically can marry me and give my family a future and hope. I realize I've not yet explained the biblical background of the kinsman redeemer and what it meant in the Jewish culture, but I'm saving that since it will come very naturally uh, through next week's text. Check out Deuteronomy chapter 25 if you want a preview. Right now, we just need to understand that in following God's redemption plan, Ruth risked rejection from Boaz. Think about what she'd already been given at this point. She already had a job, as it were. She was being provided for. What if she upset Boaz with all these overtures and he told her, just go away? Well, they could have starved. And at the least, she would have felt shame in the community. She had pride and provisions to lose here. She was risking a very tangible and consequential kind of rejection. How does this apply to us? I'll sum it up this way. God's redemption plans always require us to risk rejection from others. God's redemption plans always require us to risk rejection from others. Boaz happened to be on God's page. But many times other people are not on God's page. Am I right? That's why the risk of rejection is always included in following Christ. I can tell you that when we set out to plant our first church, 
we faced plenty of painful rejection. God had a plan, but he hadn't revealed that plan to everybody else. And some of them rejected us. People we were close to. Uh, keep in mind, I was like 29 or 30. And uh, people were quite certain that we would fail. <laughs> they said they were trying to protect us. They wanted to stop us from our risk. They were wrong. God's redemption plans always requiring you and me to risk rejection from people. What that means is that if you never risk rejection, you are not an active player in God's redemption story. In this life, fear of rejection often means you're about to do the right thing. So don't stop. Get on with it. Now let's look at Boaz. What does he risk in our story? To put it simply, number four, Boaz risks loss. He stood to lose wealth and he stood to lose reputation. Let's review this part of the story from verse 12. Now it's true, I'm a close relative, a kinsman redeemer. However, there's a relative redeemer closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good. Let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you, as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Boaz risked his reputation by involving himself in this sticky situation. That's why he told the other servants not to let anybody know that Ruth had visited him that night. That's why he asked her to leave before daylight. I don't think we should read anything scandalous into this since he clearly, or she clearly slept at his feet as she had been commanded to do. However, as we all know, gossips don't need any more than that to do their damage. I think also Boaz knew there was some gray area here in the fact that Ruth was from Moab. She was not one of the chosen people. Perhaps there was some question as to the right thing to do. At the least, there was opportunity for criticism by those who always stand ready to criticize and particularly to criticize those who are known to have noble character, as chapter 2 describes Boaz. In one way or another, Boaz risks some of his excellent reputation in setting out to redeem Ruth. And then in chapter 4, as we'll see next time, Boaz had to go through some legal stuff, and he had to observe various customs to make sure nobody could ever question his right to marry Ruth, and as we'll see, he even had to pay for the land that belonged to Ruth and uh, Ruth's late uh, husband. He's also agreeing to take on Ruth and Naomi as dependents. So Boaz, Boaz actually puts some of his wealth at risk in this, but he would have risked nothing had he turned Ruth away. See, the status quo is always risk-free, but redemption will always cost someone something. What's the application for us? I'll put it this way. God's plan of redemption will often require us to risk wealth and reputation. Might as well expect it. These days we think, like to think God doesn't need our money. But the truth is that God's plan in this world almost always requires somebody to sacrifice some of their wealth. I don't have time to get into the reasons for that, but I bet you can figure out that it might have something to do with laying down idols and putting God first. As far as risking reputation... I've found that those fully involved in God's plan of redemption for the world don't always have the best reputation. Not just the world, but even the church tends to find fault with those who do the most to expand God's kingdom. It's like clockwork. At the least, he or she might be thought of as a little out there or too radical or be discounted from the mainstream in some other way. And you can count on the fact that he or she will have enemies that spew forth venom formed from jealousy. There will always be those who tear us down when we follow God. God's plan of redemption will often require you to risk wealth and reputation. 
Let's look briefly at one last redemption risk. In our story, Naomi and Ruth risk waiting. Naomi and Ruth risk waiting. There's a time to act. There's a time to wait. Sometimes waiting feels like an even bigger risk than acting. What if I miss my window of opportunity? Those are the moments when we must remember God's sovereignty. God has all the time in the world. But how do you know when it's time to wait and it's time to act? Well, that's kind of a complicated question, but some of it has to do with doing what you can when you can and letting God do what he can when you can't. Let me say that again. Do what you can when you can and let God do what he can when you can't. Beyond that, there's a certain amount of common sense required in knowing when it's time to act or time to wait. There's such a thing as godly wisdom, and godly wisdom has as much to do with timing as anything else. For instance, notice that in verse 1 of chapter 3, time has passed. Naomi has waited for a bit before proceeding with her plan. How do I know this? Remember when they came into town, it was the beginning of the barley harvest. And now we see that it's time for a threshing out of the now dried grain. What this means is that a few weeks have passed between the time when Ruth first met Boaz and when she came to him with her proposition of marriage. Naomi had a good sense of timing. There had been a time to wait and now it was time to act. But what if they'd missed their chance? You know, what if in waiting, Boaz had taken an interest in someone else? What if any number of things had happened to foil the plan? That's where faith and trust in God's overarching control comes in. Naomi and Ruth had to surrender to God during the necessary waiting period. They had to risk to wait. Which one of these do you think is hardest for me, by the way? Yeah, if you know me, this is the one that's hard because I'm like, go, go, go. Also in verse 18, we see Naomi and Ruth waiting again, waiting for Boaz to take care of legal matters. Naomi says, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. As we seek to follow God's plan, there's a time to act and there's a time to wait. Both require risk. Both require faith. That wraps wraps it up for today. I'm excited about next week because next week is like Return of the Jedi. Okay, some of you know what I'm talking about. Um, Next week, we're going to talk about redemption rewards. And those rewards flow right out of the risks that we talked about this week. When we take godly risks, that is, when we walk by faith, we will receive even more blessings. Next time, we're going to cover the conclusion of this story, which points to the conclusion of our own story. The ultimate rewards of redemption. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the story of Ruth. Thank you for how we can see ourselves in her. She was far from you. She did not know you. She did not want to live her life for you. She didn't live her life for you. She was a pagan in a place where they worshipped another god, where they, their lives just weren't about Yahweh. They, they had other things on their minds. They were walking a different path. But God, to see how you reached out and saved her from that, And how you rescued her and redeemed her. It gives us all hope. And we know because of the rest of the story, because of um, the gospel, because of what you came down here in Christ to tell us and to do for us, we know that we all can be like Ruth. Any of us can be saved. That you loved the whole world. That you gave your only son. That whoever, whosoever believes. Whosoever puts their trust 
in Christ can be saved, can have eternal life. Lord, help us learn from your word, from this example of Ruth. We know from two weeks ago that she, she made a commitment. Her faith had a commitment to it. It had a repentance to it. It had a, a major life decision to it. It was a moment of turning from going one way and turning and going another. I want to worship and serve Yahweh, the Lord. And God, now on the other side of Christ, we know that, that you are a God that is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And and that as we put our faith in the cross and what you did there, that really was this, the pinnacle of human history, the moment when you paid the price for our sins, when you offered redemption to all. And we look back to that in faith and we're saved. God, I pray for anyone here today that's never done that, that today might be the day, that today would be the day to turn, to repent, to say, you know what, I don't know, maybe you're a person who's never even pretended. Maybe you're a person coming in here today, and you're like, you, Ruth, I mean, you were just so far away, you've never even tried to claim to be a Christian. But maybe you're, you're somebody else, that's, your, your life has been more like, yeah, I've always been a Christian, or I'm kind of a Christian, or yeah, if you say you're a Christian, if you're talking to a Christian, you know, stuff like that. I mean, just, I'm here to tell you, and you can read your New Testament and find out why, but you are not saved if that's the kind of faith you have. You don't know Jesus, and when you face Him at the end, you're not going to like what He says. But that could change today. You've got to risk it. You've got to put it on the line. You've got to put the parachute on that's Christ and jump out of the plane, no looking back. Is today the day for you? He does the rest. But you do have to put your faith into action and take that risk. Risk it on Jesus. You can trust Him. Would you trust Him today? Father, I just think back to so many hymns that we used to sing at the end of services. I surrender all. Just as I am. I come with, without a plea, without a hope, except in you. I don't come already fixed. I don't come already right before you. I come needing a Savior. I wonder if there's someone here today that would come just as you are in your heart. We used to walk the aisle. That's not really, that's fine, but that's not what's necessary for salvation. What's necessary for salvation is even in this moment right now, you can put your trust in Jesus. He will change you and you'll never be the same. Would you do that today? All to Jesus I surrender. Sing it with me. All to Him I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him in His presence daily live. I surrender. I surrender all, I surrender all, all to Thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. hope you meant that today. God, redeem our lives and all of our mistakes and all our problems.
We just surrender it all to you. Lay it at the foot of the cross. It's in your hands and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.